Hear the word of God from Nehemiah 5. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Nehemiah 5. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against those nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. <clears throat> At the meeting, I said to them, we're doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you are selling them back into slavery again? How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day. And repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assemble responded, amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine beside 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet, I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. This is the word of the Lord. This works. Good morning, I'm Danny. I'm the pastor of International Student Ministry here. At Waypoint, I'm going to put my water because I might need it a little later. Um, 
and I also serve as a campus minister to international students at Duke, and it's a pleasure to be preaching with you on uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going through the book of Nehemiah as a congregation, and uh, just want to warn you guys, this morning I had some serious snags. I got up early to prepare and pray, and I actually locked myself out of the old church office, which is near South Point Mall, and somebody had to come and get me, and since that moment, I've been kind of scattered. The PowerPoint slides that you see were originally made in 4.3 aspect ratio, and they're supposed to be 6.9, and I would have known that if I would have gotten here early, so that's, your vision isn't crazy when you read those other ones. It is a little off. You don't need to go get glasses on Monday. Uh, so please forgive me for that, and I, I ask for, yeah, just ask for your forgiveness, and God is going to work through me as I preach his word this morning. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5. So I'm going to start by asking a question. Have any of you heard a story about a beautiful house or somebody that had mold? Just, just somebody have mold underneath their house. So I had a friend, and during the they kind of got the good end of the Great Recession, and they got a huge house for a low price. You know, somebody built this big house, and it went into foreclosure, but there was serious mold in the basement. I'm talking an $8,000 dehumidifier running all the time, water pumps, sealers, guys coming out, $50,000 worth of mold damage in a house that was probably three years old. I mean, in this house, if you were on the first floor, this thing is gorgeous. The kind of walls, you know, not the kind with curves, but where somebody went through and rounded them off. I had never seen that before. You know, I was like, wow, this is just an amazing house. And then the owner began to tell me about the $50,000 mold problem. When we moved in the house that we live in now, five years ago, six years ago, we moved to the Triangle. And uh, they painted it, they put new carpet. But after we moved in, I was like, I smell something. And luckily, we nipped the mold problem in the bud really, really early. Like it had just started growing. Raleigh's a very humid place. The Triangle's very humid. Um, so here, so you could have a beautiful house and mold can be growing underneath it. And I think sometimes in the church this happens. Everything looks good on the outside, but we're not paying attention to, to problems and things, and we're, we're not being alert and mold, and things are growing up. And we, we need to sometimes just stop and say, God, look around and say, God, what are you doing, and, and how are we missing being like Christ as a church together? So we'll go back to Nehemiah, and I feel like Nehemiah addresses a similar problem to what we might experience in our church today in, in Nehemiah 5, the passage that Maggie just read. In chapter 1 at Nehemiah, we meet Nehemiah, the king of Persia's cupbearer, his wine tester, the most trusted man on the court, the guy that protected the king from being poisoned. He had direct access to the most powerful man in that, point of, that part of the world. So let's pause and think about this. So God raises up Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, Mordecai, and now Nehemiah and many others to positions of leadership and foreign governments to achieve his purposes. Could you imagine a foreigner as the right-hand man to our current president? I'm not saying that, you know, it didn't, any president, but particularly this one, you know, that, that would be very interesting, okay? Imagine if God raised up this wasn't in my script, so I, but imagine if God raised up a foreigner, someone from the outside, to be the right-hand man of the person running America. That would be a miracle, any country. 
But here is Nehemiah, the right-hand man to the king, just like Daniel before him and others, even Esther and Mordecai, these others that I mentioned. Now let's go back. So why are Nehemiah and the Hebrew people living in Persia and not Jerusalem? They are in exile. After years and years of sin, idolatry, and rebellion against, rebellion against God and his perfect love, God allows foreign armies to conquer Israel, destroying almost everything and exiling the people to foreign lands uh, to serve the conquering king. God warned them about this many times through Moses and the law, and then he warns them over and over again through the prophets. But their continued stubbornness and disobedience and rebellion ultimately led to their captivity and exile. But God's not giving up on his people. He kept his promises. This is clearly evident in the fact that Nehemiah's rise up to the royal court and, his abil and the ability for Nehemiah to get a direct order from the king to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. This is God working. Actually, we sang Greatest Thy Faithfulness this morning, and that's in the Jeremiah's lament. It's all about the destruction of Jerusalem and how terrible it is. We're actually going to look at that passage this morning. And in that, Jeremiah can say, Great is your faithfulness, because he knows that there's hope. And God is moving, and God moves in Nehemiah and gives him this position and lets them go back. And he's fulfilling his promise, even though they were sin and stubborn people. So I googled Prince of Persia. This is my comic relief for my sermon. And this is what came up. There was a video game of Prince of, this video, I don't know, some of y'all, and they made a movie. So I was like, what would a Prince of Persia look like? So I don't know, this is not what Nehemiah would look like, but some of you might be into video games or science fiction movies, so I don't know. All right, so now Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. He has left uh, Persia. He is now kind of the governor of Jerusalem, and he's rebuilding the city wall and its gates and restoring protection, order, and dignity to the city. He's facing opposition from local enemies and outside enemies, but he's still under protection from the king and under order from the king. So God is with him. Um, look on this slide on the TV. I'll put this on the city. I was going to try to hand these out, but this is just a picture of the Old Testament. And I wish I could point, but if you look at the break where the, the line kind of breaks like that, that's when the two kingdoms split. So there's there were three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon in the United Kingdom, and then they split. And look on the top. The red represents bad kings, kings who didn't follow God. How many kings of Israel, can, I know it's hard to see, but how many of you can see any, any uh, green on that? Zero. Now look on the bottom. Those are the kings of, of Judah, the, the other tribe that followed God. And there's a few in there. Has, um, so you can see why they went into exile. They blatantly disobeyed God over hundreds of years. And if you look at the chart, it goes down, it dips down, they go into captivity into Babylon, and if you follow the dotted line, it goes back up. And that's the time of Zerubbabel and Ezra. God allows them to come back, and then Nehemiah enters the scene a little bit later. So you, you see how long the history of the Old Testament people is? And then you see that cross? Like, Nehemiah is moving us along, and he's, he's saying we... We can't save ourselves, but we're going to try. We're going to rebuild the city, and we're going to trust God. So that's, that's where we are at in Old Testament history. So from the time of David, for almost 400 years, Jerusalem was in a flourishing and important city. Then the city is ransacked and destroyed. Listen, this is Jeremiah chapter 1. 
Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once a great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night, tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations that has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down, and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper. The Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away into distant lands. This is Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, literally explaining what happened and why it happened. Their sin and rebellion against God had utterly destroyed them and separated them from God's protection and this great promised land and the nation that he had given them. Their sin sorry, and rebellion against God had utterly destroyed them and separated them from God. But, just like with Adam and Eve and Noah, God was faithful in his promises. He did not allow for their com- complete destruction or abandonment. So this is the city that Nehemiah is rebuilding. A city that protected and represented a people that were devastated and destroyed. This is the situation. They're not just rebuilding a wall and some gates. They are rebuilding their way of life, their personhood, their nationhood, and restoring their relationship with God. So this is, this is the background. This is where we're getting to this. I'm trying to build a case to show how bad it is what Nehemiah has to deal with in Nehemiah chapter 5. Through the providence of God, many Jews were allowed to return. The priest Zerubbabel, an expert in the law of Moses, and Ezra had allowed them, they had been granted permission to return. So again, this is God's favor all along. God is working in the background, even among pagan kings. And they're allowed to actually restore the city, and more importantly, restore the temple, the place where they could worship their God. So Nehemiah enters the scene, one where weekly, weekly, Hebrew pilgrims are returning to the city from exile. A great wave of migration as people are returning home. So Nehemiah is not just leading this rebuilding a city, but he's rebuilding hope and a future to broken and hurting people. They're restoring a city wall and gates, and they're bringing hope to these people. And the project has been going really, really well. There's been a few snags. Pastor Lawrence talked about it last week, and that's what we call opposition from the outside. And you remember, they had spears. They're literally like holding a spear in one hand and putting the bricks up in the other. What a, what a crazy picture. You know, you're building a wall and fighting with the sword. They had this system to protect themselves. But the people are busy at this point, and they're busy working for God. And they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And Nehemiah, you think he's feeling pretty good about himself? He's getting things done. At this point, Nehemiah had got his MBA. And he read all the classics. So I'm going to put some of the classics up there. Nehemiah read Getting Things Done. He read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He read The Tipping Point. And my favorite, he read Jesus CEO. Because I don't even know if this is a good book or not. I just saw it on, on Amazon. 
I'm not endorsing it or saying it's bad. I don't know anything about it, but it's definitely on the leadership books on Amazon. So here's Nehemiah, right? He is feeling good. He is Mr. Manager. He is running everything. No problems in the world. Everything's going well. And he's ready to write his own book on leadership. He's actually starting an MBA program at Jerusalem University. But then something happens. Let's go back to chapter 5. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. We need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and home, homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. Um, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. We're mortgaging our fields. And then it says, when I heard their complaints, this is Nehemiah talking, I was very angry. After thinking it over, so Nehemiah stops and thinks, he spoke out against these nobles, and he told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. So Jews that had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off debt. Nehemiah has this program to buy them back. And at the same time, his own people are enslaving the people who came out of slavery into back to the promised land. You see the, the web of the mess that's going on? And he says, but you're selling them back in slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Wow. Wow. The people that saw their cities decimated and plundered, and the only reason they even had that city is because God pulled them out of slavery in Egypt in the first place. The people that saw their cities decimated and plundered, the people who lived as aliens and slaves themselves, were now enslaving their own people. And just as a side note, I want to put two things into perspective. One, it was a common practice in the Near East to take over one's property, including children, if that per person couldn't pay a debt. So the slavery wasn't permanent. Do you remember any of you uh, Star Wars Episode One, Anakin and his mom? Similar type theme, you know, she owes a debt, like Qui-Gon buys back. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hit the science fiction crowd. Some of you are tracking with me. Uh, this was very, very common all over the world. It wasn't right. Jesus, God hates it, I believe, and God made a way to stop it, and we'll look at that later. There's a year of Jubilee when you're supposed to, even if they didn't pay the debt back, you're supposed to give them back their freedom on year seven. But this was a common practice. Now, it probably wouldn't have been a really good thing to do among your family. It was more done among foreigners or war debts or other debts. The second thing I want us to um, remember is this is a theocracy. They're governed primarily by religious law, and there's no separation between church and state. And Nehemiah is bringing them back to live under the law of Moses. Now, so we can't compare their situation to our modern situation directly. And I would say that the law of Moses was set up to protect people. It may sound harsh to us today, but it was gracious and humane, and it was very gracious and humane compared to all the other cultures around them. 
It was set up by God to help people prosper, to help them be holy, and to protect the vulnerable. Let's look at Exodus chapter 22, um, verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for your loan, it must be returned before sunset. This coat may only be a blanket, may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out for me to help, I will hear. Then I will hear, for I am merciful. These are the kind of sins and, and grievances against God that sent them into exile, not following this. Deuteronomy 23, 19. Do not charge interest or loans uh, you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. See how they're directly breaking this uh, in Nehemiah 5? Deuteronomy 15. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve six years, the seventh year, let them go free. This isn't in my notes, but the tragedy of transatlantic slavery that the Europeans brought is there was never a way to get them free. And I believe as a church, we still continually have to remember that and, be, and think, how could that have happened? But could it happen again? Are we doing similar things? And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. So not only do you let them go, even if the debt wasn't fully paid, supply them liberally from your flock. Give them as the Lord has give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. One of the key, core tenets of our faith as Christians is we love others because Christ loved us first. I can love my enemy because Christ loved me when I was his enemy. This goes back way back. This goes back to the beginning. This was always the way that God worked. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Because they didn't follow God's law and repent, they were forced into exile. The law was set up to protect their hearts and protect their community. While they're in exile, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel says this, Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not oppress anyone, but return what he took in a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but he gives food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend, them, lend to them at interest or take profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong. He follows my decree and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. And we can't do this on our own, but in Christ we can actually be this person. Will we mess up? Yes. But we can be this person that, Isaiah, that Ezekiel is prophesying about. Nehemiah and his governing crew were so busy doing the things they were supposed to do that they forgot to look around and see the injustice that was happening to the poor and vulnerable all around them. I don't think this problem just sprung up on them. I'm sure it had been going on for years. There was families that were hungry, famine, taxes, Slavery among their own children, mortgaging fields. So what does Nehemiah do? One, he stops to reflect. Two, he takes his part of the blame. Three, he takes a strong and burdensome approach, making sure that these injustices don't happen again, going as far as rationing and regulating how the officials eat. Then he goes back to his task of building the wall. 
but with the continual eye ready to stop injustice. Maybe seeing the rubble around him reminded him not to challenge God's perfect law. Maybe it was hearing the stories of the people. Either way, he began to walk in the fear of God and not the fear of other officials or the rich people. He feared God. In chapter 3, they're building the wall and fighting. Fighting with one hand, they're building the wall with the other. But now they have the sword, the bricks, and an eye for justice. An eye for Christ-like justice, I would say. And you may say, Danny, this is great, but how does this relate to me? America 2017, we're not in a theocracy. This is not ancient Jerusalem. Uh, it was very easy for Nehemiah to tell them to do this. They had the law of Moses. They had the prophets. What are we supposed to do? Look, let's look at Galatians 6, chapter 2. Paul says, Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So they had the law of Moses, but we have the law of Christ. This is the only place in the New Testament where it says law of Christ, so scholars debate the exact meaning of this. But we can say this from this passage. The law of Christ, following the law of Christ, involves carrying each other's burdens. I can't tell you exactly what it means. I mean, this is a, a heavily debated passage, but exactly like how to parallel this to the law of Moses and what it means to be the church. But no matter what, you have to say that the law of Christ involves us carrying each other's burdens. So let's look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High God, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And this is the Christ-like justice that I believe the entire New Old Testament is pointing us to. That one day, we can actually do this. And I believe we won't be perfect, but our, the Church of Christ can begin to execute this Christ-like justice. We can be merciful, because the Father was merciful to us. Just like Nehemiah was calling the officials to a different standard, I believe Jesus is calling us to a different standard. A standard of mercy, like God the Father's standard of mercy. And I would call this Christ-like justice. We're called to be Christ-like in all areas of our lives, including how we work for justice individually and corporately as a local church. This Nehemiah passage has dozens of action points. Actually, Nehemiah is pretty easy to teach on. Because you can just pull this out and tell people you got to do this or that. There's, I mean, like I said, this could be an MBA class on, you know, how to, on leadership. Actually, there are leadership books written by pastors that are read among the business community, and Nehemiah is the basis of leadership. So I'm not going to pull those today. I'm, I'm thinking about our congregation, and I just prayed. I said, God, what do you want us to hear from this? And I want to focus on Christ-like justice as a covenant community. I believe the covenant community, we are the covenant community. Actually, I love how we call our membership class the covenant community, covenant family class. Because when you join the church of Christ, the local church, you're part of this covenant community that's part of a community all over the world. 
There are brothers and sisters all over the world that we're connected to, but we're this local covenant community. And how can we focus on Christ-like justice as a covenant community? Let's be the local church of Jesus Christ. One, we need to set up an alert system. Remember, if it happened to them, it can happen to us. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, we always learned about the, the Hebrew people and them in the desert and you know, all their complaining in the wilderness. And I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, how, how can we keep learning about this? Why can't we move on to the next stories? And years later, it hit me. We learned about this because they're us. We get favor from God and we just keep complaining. We, we, we turn to idols so quickly. So if it happened to them, it can happen to us. I realize this might sound too pragmatic, too business-like, and not spiritual, but I believe that being alert is very spiritual. Most commentators, if you were to say, what's the theme of 2 Peter? They would actually say the theme of 2 Peter is be alert. If you want to sum it up into one statement, be alert. We need to set up this reminder system. Actually, I set, up, set off the church alarm system yesterday when I came in, so forgive me for that. But alert systems let people know that there's an intruder or, or a false intruder. We need reminders to remember. If I don't go down and make sure, every once in a while I go down and make sure that the dehumidifier is running under my house. Because if it stops running, the mold could grow again. I have to set up an alert system, and when I get lazy, or I get, I get focused on other things, I might forget that mold could be fostering all throughout my house and poisoning me and my children and my, my wife. So I need to be alert, and I need to set up a system to remind me to go down there and check the dehumidifier. Let's be a, the kind of people who set up a system to check our hearts. This is individually. Check your heart. Check your actions, check your thoughts, check your words. One of the themes in the book of James is if you say it, it's probably a measure of your heart. If your tongue is speaking it, and you're, even if you're throwing it out subtly or subconsciously, it's, it's showing that there's stuff in your heart that you just got to check yourself and ask God for forgiveness. Ask God to help you grow in that area. And then corporately, let's look around. Let's be accountable and vulnerable to each other. Small groups, men's and women's times, personal friendships. If you see a friend moving in a direction or throwing jabs out that might be, be words of injustice or words of unkindness, help steer them back to what is Christ-like justice. Check your own heart. Don't be nitpicky with each other, but we've got to be the body. Who else is going to check us and say, hey, guys, Maybe, well, maybe this rhetoric is hurting people. Maybe our actions, maybe the way we spend our money or our time isn't Christ-like. Set up an alert system. Be accountable to each other. As pastors and elders and leaders at Waypoint, we too are always checking this. We're trying to set up all the structures possible based on the scriptures to make sure we're following Christ in all ways, including Christ-like justice. Christ-like justice. Pastor Lawrence literally came to me a couple days ago, and he's like, I think we need to set up another checks and balances system just so that we as pastors can keep following Christ. Like, he's like, maybe we're a little weak in this area because we've been work focusing on other things, logistical things. And we, that's what we're called to do. Is, and we're going to do that as leaders, 
but we need you guys. If every member is a missionary, every member is also called to execute justice and help each other in this fight for Christ-like justice. Point number two. Stop. Take time to pray and reflect. Then, with biblical wisdom and discernment, take action. Don't immediately read something on Facebook and then click forward, you know, send, because there's some great injustice in the world, and you don't stop and think, you know. In, in today's world, it's crazy how fast things fly. So we need to be people who use discernment and wisdom and think through our actions. So notice that Nehemiah stops and reflects. Last week, we learned about how Nehemiah stopped and prayed. So we have to be people that stop, take time, pray, reflect. When Nehemiah heard the injustices, he was angry, but he stopped and reflected, sought God, then he took action. Stop, seek God, listen more, learn, begin, and then begin to take action. Uh, part of that action could be sharing your burdens with others. Maybe someone else in the body of Christ has already been dealing with this. So instead of clicking forward this crazy message that, about some injustice that you may or may not know the, the full story, you may say, hey, someone at church, they know a lot about the refugee crisis, or they know a lot about immigrants in, the, uh, you know, in our community, or they know a lot about this. Maybe I'll ask them their opinion. I have a neighbor who lives behind me who works for the Raleigh Rescue Mission. So I had a dilemma, like what should we, we do sometimes with homeless people or whatever, so I asked him. Now, he didn't give me all the answers, but he gave me some practical advice. So there are other brothers and sisters that God is working with that can help you make judgments on how to be Christ-like in your sphere. I'm not an expert in all areas of being, building Christ's kingdom, but someone in, in this community can help point us to Christ-like justice. Let's be the body of Christ for each other, and let's trust the gifts and experiences within the body to build Jesus' kingdom. That's what we're here for, right? We're here to build Christ's kingdom. In our own church, this is cool. God has raised up different people doing Christ-like justice in many ways. Marilyn Hackney, who I just met about a month ago, I found out she leads this gumdrop group. They're, it's called Gumdrop Ministry. They do backpacks for underprivileged kids. They're packing 150 of them this month. 150. And there's other groups doing it. So she, I mean, this church is committed to serving 150 kids with their needs for a month. Praise God for that. Many, many Waypoint people intentionally live in lower income apartments to bring justice and love and hope. The hope of Christ to the people who live there. I mean, I, I heard some of you told me stories where if a non-refugee or immigrant has a problem, the management just comes and fixes their shower or whatever. But when someone who's from a poorer community who doesn't really maybe speak English that well, they call management, it could take days, weeks, even months to get the same thing to happen because the management knows they can take advantage of them. And many of you are fighting for justice in all kinds of ways, but ultimately you're pointing people to the hope of Christ. And you're showing them, because God loved me, I can love you. Because God came and lived on earth in a neighborhood that was a lot worse than his neighborhood where he could have lived. I can live anywhere because of Christ. And one day you're going to have a new neighborhood. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to make all things new. Thank you guys for doing that. 
Thank you for foster care. I remember the first couple weeks we came to Waypoint, there was a foster care meeting, and it just broke Eric and I's heart. Pray for us. We really want a foster care, but our house isn't big enough. We're praying that God will give us a bigger house. I, who knows what God has in store for the people in this community? You can't do everything, but you can do something. Ask God what that something is for you. Pray for the Triangle. Pray for Durham. Pray for Chapel Hill. Pray for Raleigh. Pray for your neighborhood. Look, at, is there injustice? The school systems, I don't know. God will lay it upon your heart and show you how you can love him and serve him. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those who are enslaved around the world. Start by praying. Start by asking God, God, I can't do everything, but I can do something. What are you calling me to do? Number three, deal with the root of the problem, sin. We've been given a lot, and in this blessing, it's easier to sin and cover up sin. Injustice exists because of our own sin, because of sin in families, sin in our nation, sin in the world, and even sin in the churches. Remember, Nehemiah was busy doing good stuff for God while blatant sin was happening all around him. Many churches are doing a lot of great activities, and just for some reason they're not noticing these other things. We're not perfect, we're going to make mistakes. But we can always be looking around and saying, God, how is our heart right individually and is our heart right as a group? What is keeping us from fighting for Christ-like justice? Is it busyness? Sin distracts us from focusing on what really matters. Is it laziness or indifference? It's easier to do nothing than to engage. Is it ignorance? Ignorance is bliss, right? If you don't know of a need, you don't have to respond. So how can we choose to know and not be people who choose to ignore? Is it greed? Many times we're greedy and we, we don't even recognize it. Pastor Lawrence gave a great sermon. You can listen to it if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago on, uh, on giving and talking about greed and, and, and being generous people. That's one of our plumb lines here at Waypoint. We want to be generous people for the gospel. Sin, distract us. Sin will distract us and will ultimately lead to our destruction. But thanks be to God that he gave us Jesus Christ, who sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. We have to continually confess our sin and check our hearts. D.L. Moody says this, said this, he passed away a while ago. A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. Let's be people who shine. Let's be people, we turn to God and confess, and he changes us and works in us. And we can be the light of justice to those around us. Fourth point, turn to Jesus. We're about to take communion. We need to confess our sins individually and corporately. And Pastor Lawrence is going to go into a deeper explanation of what we're doing when we take communion. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God himself, entered human history. Zerubbabel, Ezra, they, they were these Messiah-like people set to reestablish the covenant community. They failed. Nehemiah seems encouraging, but when we get to the final chapter in a couple of weeks, it ends kind of in failure. Like they built the wall, they built the temple, but guess what? The Greeks came and conquered them again, and the Romans, they failed again. But guess what? 400 years later, God enters into human history. He moved into the bad neighborhood, our world, to live with us, to save us, to set us free. That's our hope. So let's be people who turn to Jesus and turn others to Jesus. 
And if you don't know Jesus, if you never don't even know what that means, talk to someone in this room. Come up, talk to me, or Pastor Lawrence, or really anybody wearing a name tag, uh, one of these orange lanyards. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to turn to Jesus.